Our lesson today does center around the text we just read there from Deuteronomy chapter 30. But we want to ask the question, what do you really want? Now this may be something we ask when we talk to our family this time of year when we think about trying to buy them some type of, of gift as we often do this time of year. It may be a question we ask every Lord's Day before we go out to eat. What do you really want? But more than that, we think about our own personal lives. We have to ask ourselves the question, what do you really want in life? What is really important? You know, the common answer is family is the most important thing. And let's be very clear, family is extremely important in our lives, but is family really the most important thing? And the Bible, as we just saw there in Deuteronomy chapter 30, tells us that we are to love God, which means that God is the most important person in our lives. Where is God in the answer to these questions, this question of what do I really want? We think about this idea, we want to begin first by looking at mankind. We're going to be looking at mankind, and then we're going to look at God and His side of it. We want to begin by looking at the idea of what mankind often wants and searches to find. What mankind often wants and searches to find. I think it can be summarized by saying the search for joy, gladness, and pleasure in this world. Now, joy is not sinful. Gladness is not sinful. Pleasure doesn't have to be sinful. But we think about it in the worldly context in which we want to keep this in. We think about what mankind often wants. Because when we say mankind in this context, we're talking about those who are not Christians, or maybe sometimes those who are Christians, but are starting to waver for a host of reasons. We look at a book of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Which to me, Ecclesiastes is a really good way to look at some Bible answers concerning what mankind often tries to pursue in order to bring about joy, gladness, and pleasure. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, looking in verse 1, the Bible says, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy, therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. The writer here, who is believed to be Solomon, says such pursuits, in verse 1, were done in vain. We look at this idea of mirth and, and pleasure. Well, that's really the idea of joy and gladness and pleasure. That's, where, that's what he's talking about, really, in verse 1. The idea of mirth is the idea of joy and gladness and happiness. He wants to find happiness in this world. Well, do we know people like that today who are looking for happiness in this world? We know those who are trying to find ways to, not just to, quote, gratify the flesh, as we oftentimes run to that pursuit. You hear someone say, I just, I'm looking for something that's going to make me happy. Something that's going to, as sometimes we hear that phrase, fill the void in my life. We know in Ecclesiastes 2, I think we really find that Solomon was missing something. Because even though he had more wisdom than anyone else on the earth, as the Bible talks about, but yet, he doesn't always apply. You know, someone can be wise and do a lot of really ignorant things, can't they? And Solomon in Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 1, he talks about how he's searching, he was searching out for things. He says, 
Come now, I will test you. Don't we test dry vehicles before we buy them? Well, that's the idea we find here. He's testing things out to see what's going to make him, uh, help him find joy and gladness and pleasure in this world. You look at the very next verse, and no worry, we're not going to look at every verse in chapter 2. We're not even going to get close. But we're going to pick out just a few. We want to notice in the very next verse here. He says, I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? Laughter is a reference to the good times, my living in sin. And he says here, as he says, it's madness, which means really I did there is it didn't last. The joy, the happiness he found from things, he says, it was madness. It didn't last. It was short-lived. And of mirth, he says, what does it accomplish? Trying to find pleasure from this life, he says, what does it accomplish? Think about for a moment, if you remember, do we have examples of those in the Bible who had a chance before them to decide if they wanted to follow God or they want to pursue worldly pleasures? You know, one example, at least one example, is Hebrews chapter 11. We were reminded of a man by the name of Moses. The Bible says, when he became, a full, uh, became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, which means he was rejecting the pleasures that would come as being a son of Pharaoh's daughter. He says in verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Isn't he saying that Moses recognized that the pleasures of this world were vanity? That it didn't last long? And don't misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with finding joy in this life, and we should in certain things, as we'll talk about a little bit later. But we have to realize that if sin is involved, there's nothing that the Christians should be involved in. And we find here in verse 25 here that he points out that Moses recognizes there were some pleasures in sin. But he says they're temporary. He says they're passing, which means they don't last very long. Think about for a moment how long the new car smell lasts in your car. Sometimes it's until the first kid gets sick, right? Or until the first time we spill some kind of beverage or drop something. Maybe someone gets in the car and what happens over a period of time and that new car smell, it seemingly is pretty popular, goes away, right? It's passing. And that's what he's idea here. It's temporary. It doesn't last. And that's what Solomon recognizes there in verse 2 of Ecclesiastes 2. Mirth and gladness, he says in verse 2, seem to last only for a moment. As he asked in the very next verse, what does it accomplish? The very next phrase, what does it accomplish? We go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, looking in verse 3. He says, I search my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom. Keep in mind, this is the same idea that some people use today. Well, I can drink, but I won't get drunk. How do you know that? See, Solomon, though, he had wisdom. He wasn't always the smartest one out there. He says, I search my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom. His list of attempts, as we continue on here, uh, in verse 3 and through verse 9, as we'll see in a moment, we find that none of these things bring happiness. And this idea of, of verse 3 of the uh, trying to gratify his flesh with wine, that is, he's trying to find ways to make himself happy from alcohol. This is not condoning social drinking, is it? 
No. The book of Proverbs condemns it. Well, there's many other verses in the Bible condemns it, so that can't be what he's talking about here. Proverbs 20, verse 1 tells us it makes man a mocker. It means it makes man look foolish. He goes on to say here in verse 3 and following, he says, And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I want to see what I should do in this life to what? To bring happiness. How should I be living? He says in verse 3. He says in verse 4, I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. Notice there, we'll look at verse 6 first. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. You notice the plurality there? Houses, plural. Not one, multiple, right? Back up again, verse, verse 4. I made, I made my works, again, plural, great which means he had a multitude of everything. I built myself houses, again, multiple. Planted myself vineyards, multiple. Made myself gardens and orchards and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. Again, multiple times he did these things. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. He says, I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of, of, of herds and flocks and all who were in and all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also I gathered my, for myself silver and gold and special treasures of, of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with, with me. Which means he still he still had wisdom, but he didn't actually doesn't necessarily mean he used it, does it? Now, if you look at all those things, you'd think the next phrase would be, "And I was so very happy." But is that what we find? Think about for a moment how we have to realize that Solomon isn't the only one he had abundance. You know, he mentions all these things he has. Go back to, or go forward to Luke chapter 12. We find a parable concerning a certain rich man, right? In Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 16, here a parable of Christ. Christ speaking, uh, verse 16 says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? He has so much, he has nowhere else to put it all, right? If you're a farmer, you're thinking, That's not a bad problem. But for this man it was. So I said, I will do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. Not help the poor. Not help the suffering. Not give it away. I'm going to build a bigger barn so I can keep everything, all I have in the prosperity that I have. Keep it all to myself. He says, I will store my, all my crops and my goods. Now notice verse 19. And I will say to my soul... So you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. I will tell myself, now you are happy. That's what he's saying, isn't it? But you continue reading verse 20, what happens? He realizes, oh wait, there's more to this life than possessions. Because God, as Christ bears out there, God is going to acquire his soul of him. Then what's going to happen? All those things he has is going to go away, right? He's going to go to someone else. Which means we shouldn't focus on those things is what he's talking about. Verse 20 and 21, right? This night, he says, verse 20, your soul will be acquired of you, then whose will these things be which you have provided? 
So as he lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You go back to Ecclesiastes here in a, few, here in a moment, we find that few will realize the fulfillment is not found in such ways. And when we're talking about these things, we have to recognize that when we're talking about possessions, we're going to move past this in a second. There's nothing wrong with working, providing for your families. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the pursuit of wanting to have wealth because we believe that's what's going to make us happy. And it's not just physical things. It's other things as well. We find in verse 10 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he says, What are my eyes desired? I do not keep from them, which means he literally could have whatever we he wanted, right? Now, sometimes people say, what would you do with a million dollars? Well, if we know much about this life, we know, well, we know somebody's going to take about 30% of it, right? Call it the government. And then we're going to figure out what else we're going to do with it, right? And what's going to happen? We find out we start trying to say what we're going to buy. And that's an interesting thing sometimes to think about. What will we do? We look here in verse 10. He says, I could have whatever I want, right? Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart uh, from I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. To be honest, that's kind of scary. But I think I found pleasure in it, I did it. I thought, well, someone's supposed to be pretty wise. You can be wise and you still do foolish things, can't you? He says, For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. He could do whatever he wanted, right? Then look at verse 11. He begins to talk about what his reward was. He says, Then I looked on all the works, and there was a lot of them, wasn't there? On all the works my hands had done, and on the labor which I had toiled. He looked on everything. He looked on all those houses, all those vineyards, all those servants, all those things he had, all those possessions. All those things he tried, the wine he had done, he had, he had taken part in, all those things to try to bring about laughter and mirth and fulfillment. And what does he say there in verse 11? Indeed, all was vanity. Vanity means it was empty or it was worthless. You know, I remember what he's talking about. He did whatever he wanted. He said none of it made him happy. None of it. None of the possessions. None of the things he did in life, none of those pleasurable things. And we'll talk about your moment how he talks about how he went further trying to become more educated and become great, gain even more wisdom in, in, a, in a secular sense. And he's going to say that that also was vanity. He says in verse 11, Indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun, which means it did not help him. Profit means you gain from it, right? He says that he didn't gain anything from it. Basically, he's saying it was all just a big waste of time. A big waste of time. He would later go on to gain wisdom and other such things to attempt to bring himself happiness. You can read that in verse 12 and following. But the end result was always the same. Looking at verse 17. Therefore, I hated, the, hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For all is vanity and grasping for the wind. He says he began to hate life because nothing made him happy. He's talking about physical, secular, worldly life, right? He says the intense labor and stress so many had was also vanity. Looking at verse 22 of the same chapter, 
He says, for, for what has man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart, which he has toiled under the sun for all his days are sorrowful. His work burdensome. Even in the night, his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. You think Solomon's wanting us to understand that working so hard is not going to bring us happiness? That trying to gain certain possessions or amount wealth or become so educated, that's going to bring us happiness? He says there that it didn't bring happiness to him. And he says he literally could have whatever he wanted. You think an iPhone would have changed his mind? No. You think owning stock and Apple would have changed his mind? No. Nothing did. He had the best of everything and had multiple things at times. He says it was vanity. Which brings us to our next main point. What God wants and searches to find. You think about what could God possibly want? You think his list is different than Solomon's? You think his searching is different than Solomon's? Now, some I'm sure would say, well, Solomon, you know, we can learn from him, but he can search out everything. There's other things that, you know, Solomon didn't look for. If you go through Ecclesiastes, you really find, not really. Because we know how Ecclesiastes ends, don't we? What if Solomon say, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter? Fear God and keep his commandments, right? We'll come back to that in a moment. What God wants and searches to find. Those who seek him. That's what God is looking for. He doesn't look for those who are wealthy. God doesn't care if a person's wealthy. You know, think about it, throughout the Bible, God has condemned and, and exalted, has done both those things to the, to, the, to the wealthy. He has condemned numerous wealthy people, and he has exalted numerous wealthy people. You know, if you don't realize this, Job was extremely wealthy, wasn't he? Abraham and others were extremely wealthy. No doubt God has a hand in it, but they were extremely wealthy. They did well. They prospered. God has no problem condemning the, 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 wick, uh, condemning the, the wealthy or the poor. He has no problem also exalting the, hump, the, the wealthy or the poor. So he's not looking for a person's wealth. Instead, we find in Psalm 53 and verse 2, the Bible says, God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. He's saying he's looking for those who are literally looking for him. You think about that phrase for a second. To see if there are any who understand. You think Solomon began to understand as you go through Ecclesiastes? You think he began to understand as he went through those things? As you come to the end of that book, it seemed he began to understand that God was all that mattered. That's what brought him happiness. Knowing that true fulfillment actually exists and following God, realizing that when we leave this life, the Christian gets to go to one day to that heavenly home. And so happiness was beyond what he saw and what he experienced. And that's who God is looking for, someone who understands, someone who is seeking him also. You look at Psalm 27, looking at verses 7 and 8. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. 
That's what God is looking for. This is the proper response that God wants from man, that we will search out and look for Him. We find the same idea throughout not only the Old Testament, but also the New Testament, right? The book of Acts tells us that God is near to us uh, for those who, who grow for Him, though He's not far from us, which means He's ready for us to search Him out. Does that mean God's difficult to find? No. God has never been difficult to find, has He? The problem is man allows things to come in the way, which makes it difficult to move those things out of the way so we can see God more clearly. The Lord wants those who seek Him. We look at 1 Chronicles chapter 28. Again, we find this same idea as we look at verse 9. He says, As for you, my son Solomon, notice this is who we were just talking about in Ecclesiastes, wasn't it? As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve Him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts If you seek him, he will be found by you. If you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. You think about that for a moment. He's wanting Solomon to do what? To first to know the God of your father, which is a reference to God the Father, right? And to serve him. And also notice, he doesn't just say to serve him. He says to serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. To willfully say, I'm going to follow God and no one else. I'm going to serve Him with loyalty. Which means He'll turn to no one else. And then he begins to explain in brief why. He says, the Lord searches all, all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. He's literally telling Solomon, God knows the hearts of all mankind and He knows all the reasons why we do the things that we do and say the things that we say, God knows all those things. You were asked a question, maybe to yourself, why did that person do that? I don't understand why a person would act that way or say those things. You know, we, we say that sometimes about others. Maybe sometimes we think about that to ourselves. Why not do that? I don't understand why I keep doing those types of things. You no, know, God understands that, right? Meaning he knows us in reality better than we do because he knows why we do it. God can reveal to man what man doesn't even understand about himself, can he? When when David committed sin with Bathsheba and he sent a man to call him out, what did David do? He began to realize that he was in complete contradiction to God, but also that God knew him better than he did, right? Until that point, it would seem that David thought he could hide certain things from God. Well, that didn't work, did it? You know, we also go to the New Testament. It tells us that the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, splitting, you know, even causing division between uh, bone and marrow and, 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 and word and spirit. Talking about he is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And the same in the New Testament, Right? And so we find that same idea of the Old Testament and the New Testament, which means God knows our hearts. He knows our intents, which is the why behind it. And then he tells him, so he tells him who he should be searching for. He tells him that the Lord knows all about you and everything you'll ever do and why you do it. And then he says in verse 9 here that if you seek him, he will be found. That you can find Him, you can serve Him, which means there's no excuse for not serving God. 
Now, we know there are those today, just like there were in the times of the Old Testament, the times of the apostles. You had a lot, of, a lot of excuses for the things they did, but none of them worked with God, did they? None of them worked with God. But Jonah used to use an excuse. He didn't think that Nineveh would ever change. That's why he ran off and ended up getting swallowed by prepared fish by God, right? We know why Joshua became a spokesman for Moses, right? Because Moses had died, but also because Moses was afraid of speaking. He always said he was slow of tongue and, and uh, not smooth of speech for a guy who actually talked quite a bit in the Old Testament. And so mankind is really good at having excuses. And what, what David does here in verse 9 is he tells Solomon there's no reason for not following God. He can be found. He can be served. And he knows you better than you know yourself there in verse 9. He will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. When does God cast mankind off forever? When man rebels and refuses to come back, right? God doesn't save the person who rebels. He saves the person who humbles himself and comes to, comes to him, right? God is looking for those who seek him. God is also looking for those who make him their top priority. Those who seek him, obey him, and follow him are those whom God blesses. Look at Psalm 119, looking at verses 10 and 11. He says, with my whole heart I have sought you. Does that mean he was his top priority? Yes, he gave everything. He says, oh, let me not wonder from your commandments. Your word have hidden my heart that I might not sin against you. He says he sought God with everything that he had, with his whole heart. You know, coaches tell athletes all the time, you have to give it your all. Your phrases like leave it all on the field, all those types of things, which means you don't hold anything back. You go full force until the very, very end. Now, is that any different with the Christian? Do we go full tilt to the very, very end? Do we remain faithful to God to the very, very end? You know, Revelation 2 and verse 10 <clears throat> tells us, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life, right? Be faithful unto death, which means to the very end. You are faithful to the very, very end. God is either important to us or He is not. There is no in-between, is there? You know, think about one of the churches in the book of Revelation that's spoken about is referred to as the lukewarm church because it says they're neither hot nor cold. They weren't on fire for God, as we say sometimes. Well, they weren't totally against God. They were, you know, kind of just kind of riding the fence, just kind of there. Remember how the Bible describes them? Not just as lukewarm, but that Christ would literally spew them out of his mouth because they were disgusting to him. You're about into something that's supposed to be cold and it's not cold. It's not very good, is it? Something's supposed to be hot, but it's not hot. Same idea there with the lukewarm, right? It's not what it's supposed to be. They're not, they're not full for me. Not, not what they're supposed to be. So I'm going to spew them out. Some translations say vomit, which shows you how disgusting they are to him. Those who do not seek God with their whole heart, we can say biblically it's the same idea. Some lessons for us today. There are dangers when mankind and God's desires do not align. 
There are dangers when our desires are not God's desires. You look go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And looking at verse 15, we find that our desires will not align with God when we choose unrighteousness, when we choose evil and death. Looking at verse 15, it says, So I see I've said before you today, life and, and good, death and evil. There's a choice to be made, right? There's either the good, which brings life, or there's the evil, which brings about death. There's only two choices. You know, sometimes when you talk to people about wanting to be a servant of God or even coming to a worship service at all, we hear things like, well, well, you hear all kinds of excuses, right? And there's so many of them. Which one do you pick? Well, I'm too busy today, or I worked all weekend, or, you know, I'll come to God when I'm ready. I'll be there when I can, which is saying I'll be there when I feel like it. Aren't you glad God never, ever said those types of things? I'll be there for you when I feel like it. How would that work out with a, with a family member dying? How would you feel about that? God said, I'll be there when I'm ready. That changed things pretty quickly, wouldn't it? And yet we say that type of thing to God, not just by sometimes our literal words, but also many times by our actions. Looking at verse 17 and 18 in the same chapter, he says, if your heart turns away so that you, so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them. As we said many times before, these other gods don't have to be a little golden idol. They can be anything that comes before God. Anything that comes before God is an idol. And it comes in all, they come in all shapes and sizes. He says in verse 18, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan and go in to possess. You shall surely perish. Now for them, in the context, it could have meant, literally, that God's going to kill you if you run away from Him after what He's providing for you, wanting to provide for you. But spiritually speaking, isn't it also true that we will perish, we will die in our sins if we do not follow God? Sinful lifestyles are, are always, will always result in sin. And we know what sin results in, right? Romans 6, 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. The wages of our desires not aligning with God, our lifestyles not aligning up with the Word of God, what God wants from us, the end result is we will die in our sins. That spiritual death he's talking about there in verse 23. But friends, there are blessings when mankind and God's desires do align. There are blessings. And going back to the same chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 30, but noticing this time verses 14 and verse, uh, through verse 16. He said, the word, the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Again, there's no reason for not knowing what God expects from us. We saw in verse 15 what happens. He says, So I said before you today, life and good, death and evil. Verse 16, And that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments, His statutes and His judgments that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. Now for us today, for us today spiritually speaking, will God bless us? Yes. 
If we follow God, what's the very first thing that happens upon obedience to the gospel? The Bible says our sins are remitted and we are placed in the body of Christ and we become pleasing in the sight of God, right? Blessings begin at obedience to the gospel, which begins when we are baptized for the purpose of our sins being remitted. Acts 2, verse 38. God blesses from day one, as we've mentioned before. So the question remains, what do you really want? Do we want to live life our own way, doing things our own way on our own time? Because that's what we hear a lot sometimes, right? When I'm ready, I'll do it. What if that day never comes? What if your life ends before that day ever arrives? What if you never decide, you know what, I'm not ready, I still have too much to do. I still have too many things I want to experience. You know, in all reality, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon got off very lucky, because if he had died during that time period of testing things out, you think he would have been pleasing to God, testing out sinful things, trying to find pleasure in places other than God? No way. No way. Because he wasn't focused on God. Not to the very end did he finally say, what does it all mean? Fear God and keep His commandments. Not to the very end. Because when we do things that are sinful, they're sinful no matter who you are, no matter when you live. And Solomon was was no different. So we have to ask that question, what do we really want? Is it to follow God or is it to follow our own selfish pattern? Because, friends, if it's not going after God, it is selfish, isn't it? We think about all that God wants for us, and all that God has done for us, and all things He continues to do. We're not following Him. We are being selfish. We're telling God, you know, that's nice, but I'm going to do something else until I'm getting ready. Let's close with two final verses, going back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, looking at verses 19 and 20. We looked at this a moment ago. He says, I'll call heaven and earth as witnesses to you against as witnesses today against you, which means he's calling everyone in to see what's happening. That I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. So here's your options, right? There's two. Life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey His voice, and that you may cling to Him, for He is your life and the length of your days. He's talking about a person who clings to God and sins that we continue to remain faithful to God. We obey, but then we continue to obey. That you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey His voice. Nothing good happens for us until we obey the Word of God. That you may obey His voice and you may cling to Him. For He is your life. Think about this phrase. For He is your life and the length of your days. Which tells us quite literally, God is everything that we ever need. He is our life and the length of your days. Which means from day one, God is all that mankind requires to survive. You think about when people of Israel led out of Egypt, who kept them alive? God. Who fed them from heaven? God. 
He showed them the path they should go, literally. Remember the, pipe, the, the fire and the pillar of cloud and all those types of things? Who led them? God. Who gave them water to drink? God. The list goes on, right? Who kept them alive? God did. Who brought them out of bondage? God did. Who led them to land of promise? God did. And so nothing good happens for us until we obey His voice. When people of Israel obeyed God and, and were brought out of Egypt, they were led all the way to the promised land. The only reason they had difficult times is because they rebelled against God so many different times throughout. And they became hard-hearted at various times and acted foolishly, right? So if we want to ask the question for ourselves, what do we really want? You know, we think about this time of year and what people mean when they ask that question. We should just forget all that. That's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about things that matter. It doesn't matter what's under a tree, what's hanging in the stocking. What matters is who we serve every single day. So we want to ask the question this morning as we prepare to close and offer the invitation, what do you really want? And think about for a moment, what does God really want for you?